Well, as we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we ask as we come to your word that you would please humble our hearts. Please teach us what we need to learn. Please help instruct us on ways we need to change. And please stir in our hearts worship for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we talked about last week, we all hunger for good news. We want to hear of something good. And as we said, Christmas is the good news that we all need. And it's not the good news simply because we're receiving gifts or because we're eating good food, as good as those things are. But the good news, the best news for us, is because the message because of the message of Christmas that is found in the scriptures. And this message is truly good for all mankind. But before we can appreciate the good news, before we can, can truly delight in the good that Christmas announces, we first need to come to grips with the bad news. We need to see it in contrast to the bad so, if the message of Christmas is going to be tidings of comfort and joy to you, you must first hear the bad news. You see, the message of, of Christmas is that God sent his son to save our world. But the fundamental question we have to ask is, save our world from what? It's been reported in the early part of the 20th century, that the Times of London sent out an inquiry to its readership, asking them to reply to the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? Now, a similar question asked today in our country would garner all sorts of responses. And no doubt, we could together think through the answers that have been thrown out just in the past year of what people would say is what's wrong with the world. Some would say that politics are what's wrong with the world, that because everything has gone political, it is the politics that are to blame. Others would say what's wrong with this world is inequity, the fact that there is people receive different levels of things in society is what's wrong with the world. Others would say, socialism is what's wrong. This trying to balance all of the inequity and make everything absolutely equal. And that attempt is what's wrong with the world. Others would say imperialism. This idea of nations trying to conquer other nations. Others would say racism and the animosity between different ethnic groups is the problem. Others would point to greed the love of money, and all that people do to get more money. Others, totalitarianism, the government seeking to garner more and more power to control the lives and oppress their citizenry. And while these and many more could be listed, surely identify things that are wrong with the world, they all fail to get at the core of what is truly wrong. In fact, people's diagnoses of the world's problem is, are fundamentally flawed in two ways. They say that the fundamental problem of the world is, number one, sociological. They say that the problem with the world is what people do to one another. It's simply at a human level that our problem exists. And the second way that these diagnoses, diagnoses are flawed is that they say that the problem with the world is external to them. The problem with the world is out there. It's with everyone else. It's those people that are causing the problem. And of course, we as Christians can relate to this way of looking at the world, if we're honest. You know, if we're asked, what's wrong with my family... What causes the problems within my family? We could say, well, it's that my kids don't treat each other well. They're, they're not kind to one another. Or maybe what's wrong with my marriage? 
Well, one may answer, well, it's my wife's constant nagging. Or it's my husband's failure to take leadership. When asked what's wrong with the church, one may answer, it's, it's other people. It's the fact that they're so clicky and they don't invite me in. They're not loving. In other words, we can so easily look to other people to blame for the problems that exist. And again, this shows up in so many ordinary ways in our lives. Why do you get angry as you drive down a road with other vehicles? It's all the other people, right? It's those stupid drivers that you're having to deal with. Or maybe it's your frustration at work. Well, it's the incompetence of your coworkers. It's that boss that you just can't tolerate. We naturally find ways to blame our problems on other people. It's, it's human. But we need to look deeper. In fact, the Bible calls us to look deeper for the problem of the world and the problem of our own lives. That inquiry that I told you about of the Times of London in the early 20th century to their readership on what is wrong with the world, the famed Christian writer G.K. Chesterton sent in his simple reply that said this, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am. He recognized that he was what's wrong with the world. Not that he was the great problem, but that the problem of the world exists within man. And this response better encapsulates a biblical response to our problems. Because the Bible is clear that what's wrong with the world is sin. And sin manifests itself towards other people. It does cause us to do wrong to others. And that's why we see throughout the world wrong done to other people all over the place. But fundamentally, sin is an offense against God, first and foremost. Think of it this way. If a father has told his son, son, don't hit your sister. And then the son goes and hits his sister. Has he caused harm to his sister? Indeed he has. But he's fundamentally broken the law, the command of his father. So in the same way, our sin against, is fundamentally against God, but it hurts others around us. We see this manifested and confessed in, in the Bible as well. You'll remember David, the great king of Israel. A man after God's own heart who committed adultery with Bathsheba and then to cover it up, murdered her husband. And we have his confession in Psalm 51. And this is what he says. He says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David recognized that his sin fundamentally was not sociological and external, but it was theological and internal. It was theological in that it was related to God first and foremost, and it was inside of him. It was his own sin. The Bible's clear that sin affects us all deeply and completely. It's a doctrine called total depravity. Not that every single person does as much evil as they could, but that the depravity, the sinfulness that we have affects every part of our being. In fact, the author, uh, Dane Ortland, uses an illustration that I believe is helpful. He said, if our sin was the color blue, it's not that, that everything we do is, is bright blue, but that everything is tainted blue in some way. It comes through in our words. It comes through in our thoughts. It comes through in all that we do and say we can't get away from it. The Bible is clear that we are unable to do good on our own. There's an inability that we have as sinners. Romans 3 verses 10 through 12 say, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is indicting all humanity. That there is no God seekers on their own. There are none who seek to do good on their own because we are all corrupted by sin. No one is righteous. 
And because we don't have this righteousness fundamentally in our core, therefore all that we do has been tainted. There's a corruption that, that flows through us and that causes us to sin. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We cannot claim that these things are coming from outside of us because these things, these sins that we do, come from inside of us. And therefore, all mankind, on their own, in this corruption and this sin, is liable to judgment. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is a wrath of God that is before all mankind for their sin and their rejection of him. The disobedience of his law. And therefore we are all guilty. All men, women, and children have guilt before God. Romans 3 Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. All of us fall short of God's standard. All of us fall short to keep his word. And therefore, every mouth may be stopped. Every excuse we would try to offer needs to be shut down. Every time we try to defend ourselves and try to say that we're good in some sort of way, better than somebody else, that ma our mouths must be stopped. So friends, this is the bad news of Christmas that we must come to grips with. You are corrupt through and through on your own. You have no righteousness to stand before the Lord and when you stand before him, you cannot point to any sort of goodness because it is all tainted by sin. Because we are not comparing our, God will not compare ourselves to other people. He compares us according to his holy and righteous standard and all of us fall short of that. Man apart from Christ stands under God's wrath and will one day experience his just judgment. Here's the thing, if you never accept this judgment, if you never accept this indictment from the word of God, then you will never need the rescue that Jesus brings. Christmas will not be needed by you. If someone doesn't believe they're in danger, then they're never going to see the need for deliverance. But the message of Christmas begins with the fact that we do need deliverance. We do need rescue. We are deeply flawed. We are broken. We are sinful. We are guilty. And when Jesus came to earth, he came to be the savior that we needed. He came to save us from our sin once and for all. He came to rescue guilty sinners like you and I. Paul declares in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Jesus Christ came into the world. Why? To save sinners. Jesus says, I didn't come to save the righteous, but the, to heal the sick. The message of Christmas, friends, brings comfort and joy because it tells of our rescue. And this morning, I want to remind us why Jesus is our perfect rescuer, why he is our perfect savior. The message of Christmas is good news because the baby in the manger was born to die in our place and to save us from the scourge of sin in our lives. And so I invite you to turn your personal copy of God's word to Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There have been a lot of guesses through church history. Most popular has been the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, others have been put forward, but the short of it is we don't know who wrote it. But based upon the evidence within the book, it, he is writing to Jewish Christians. Those who were Jews by birth and followed the Judaism, but then were converted out of that to follow Jesus. And so this author seeks to show the superiority of Jesus over the, the Jewish and, and Old Testament sacrificial system. Because these believers who had converted to Jesus were tempted to revert back to Judaism. They were tempted to think that the true way of God was not with Christ, but was really going back to the Old Testament law. But the, this author warns them. In fact, this book is known by its warning passages that get more and more severe as we go through the book. And he warns them to not turn away from Christ because if you turn away from Christ, you are not turning back to the living God, you are turning away from the living God. If they turn back to the sacrifices, if they turn back to Judaism, they are not acting in faith, but they are acting in unbelief. And so he is trying to uplift Jesus, uplift Jesus, show him to be more excellent and more superior than everything. In fact, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament talked about. And particularly in chapters 1 and 2, he's showing Jesus' superiority to angels. And his final argument in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2 is that Jesus is the perfect Savior for humanity. So I want to read verses 14 through 18 to set our context this morning. Then we're going to focus on verse 17 for the remainder of the morning. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Like I said, we're going to focus on verse 17 this morning. And from this verse, I want to show you three reasons why Jesus is the perfect Savior for you. Why Jesus is the perfect Savior for each and every one of us. The first reason that we'll see in this verse is that Jesus is similar to you. He is similar to you. It's his similarity and solidarity with humanity that makes him the perfect savior. Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The therefore, you've heard this as a Bible study principle, that whenever you come to the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore? What is it doing? Well, it's pointing us back oftentimes to the previous verse, if not a previous argument. It's a conclusion word. And he says, he says just previous in verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now this verse has a difficult verbs in it that has caused different translations uh, over time. And most modern translations say it has to do with aid or help that God is, that is being um, mentioned here. That he doesn't help angels, but he does help the offspring of Abraham. I tend, don't stand, I uh, won't bank my life upon this, but I tend to favor the way that the King James Version translates this. Because the verb here is that he took hold of. Essentially, it, it could say for surely it's not angels that he took hold of, but the offspring of Abraham that he took hold of. And you go, well, what does it mean to take hold of? And that's where the debate lies. The King James translates it, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. In other words, they see that taking on as the taking on of a nature versus a helping of that being. 
Now, it could go either way, and our discussion this morning doesn't depend on how this verse is translated. The thrust of the passage is not lost. The point of the verse is that Jesus' focus is on humanity, not on angels. We know that he took on the flesh and blood of humanity. He didn't take on the, the form of angels. And as he stepped into humanity, he stepped into humanity as a Jew, as an offspring of Abraham. He was not just any human, a generic human. He was a Jewish human. And hence, he mentions the offspring of Abraham. Now, it's because that Jesus takes on the nature of humans or helps humans that he thus needed to be made like them. Going back to verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He needed to be made like them in all things. Now, this verb translated had here is, is interesting. It's the word for obligate. that could be translated obligated. There was an obligation that Jesus had in order to take on human nature. He absolutely had to be made like his brothers. It wasn't an option. This verb is used of owing money or owing a duty to someone. There's an obligation that's there. And so we could say there was a divine necessity of the incarnation that Jesus had to take on human flesh and blood. Our redemption could not have worked any other way. Our salvation required the incarnation. Your salvation required, obligated Jesus to take on flesh and blood in order for you to be saved. But notice the completeness of Jesus' similarity to us. The completeness of his solidarity to us. It says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect or in all things. And of course we know that there is one category that this doesn't cover and the author will mention later in chapter 4 verse 15 that he was like us in every respect except without sin. So Jesus was completely and totally human. He just didn't have the sin nature. But other than sin, Jesus has been made like, like us. And as we talked about last week, he was truly human. He had the same physical makeup that we had. His body was made of cells like ours is. He had the same internal organs. He had the same functioning processes within his human body. And apart from the physical side, he also had the immaterial side. He had the same human emotions that you and I have. We looked at that last week, his sorrow, his joy, his, his compassion, his concern. In other words, he looked and acted truly human because he truly was human. And as human, he was subjected to life in this fallen world. He experienced the sufferings and weaknesses that come with flesh and blood. Friends, we can't think of Jesus walking upon this earth, as it's been said, uh, uh, hovering a foot off the ground and just kind of making his way and not really bumping into things or, or dealing with stuff. I, I believe he stubbed his toe. I believe he, uh, he got slivers. He would cut his finger in his work. He dealt with the weaknesses and the realities of living life in this world. He also experienced the suffering in relationship. He was betrayed. His plans were disappointed. He experienced losses. In other words, he lived a full, true human life upon this earth. And this is important that we recognize this. Because friends, Jesus will not be the Savior to help you if you do not see him similar with you. If you do not see Jesus as the one who is made like you in every respect, experiencing what you experience in life on this earth, then you're not going to turn to him. You're not going to see him as the one who can save you, who can bring comfort to you, who can help you. But he's the one who stands in solidarity with us. He's the one who is similar to you in every respect. Who is he made like? He was made like his brothers, it says. It's a verse, this is a, a phrase from the context that describes all those who follow Jesus. 
Those who have been saved by him, those who have been sanctified by him, and those who will be brought to glory. In other words, he will be made like, he's made like believers. He's made like his people. Now, this doesn't mean that believers have a special kind of humanity that other unbelievers don't. It only means that these are the ones he came to save, and therefore these are the ones he came to identify with. But here's the, the point this morning. Salvation can be only found in Jesus. He is the perfect Savior for us because he is similar to us in every way except sin. The baby in the manger was truly God and yet he was made like you in every respect so that he could qualify as your Savior. Every other religious system teaches some version of climbing the ladder to heaven, trying to do enough good works in order to be satisfy the deity in order to try to uh, accomplish a good life and to make God pleased with you. But friends, it's only Christianity that says that God that needs to be pleased and appeased is the one who came down and took on our form to rescue us, who was made like us in every respect, who dirtied himself with our humanity, who's willing to humiliate himself to that level. He came to earth to bring us to heaven. And so Jesus is the perfect savior for you because he's similar to you. But the second reason we see in this passage for why Jesus is the perfect savior for you is that he is sympathetic towards you. Not only is he similar to you, but he is sympathetic towards you. Look at verse 17 again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Notice that word, the phrase, so that. What is the purpose of him taking on human nature? It's so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest so that he could serve in a role to serve us. In this reality, this is something, Jesus became something that he wasn't before. You see, before the cross, he wasn't a high priest. Before the incarnation, he wasn't a high priest. He had to be made like us to be a high priest. And so, the incarnation made it possible to, for him to fill that role. Now, a high priest, we typically don't think in terms of high priests and wake up every day and go, man, I'm glad I got a high priest today. In the 21st century, we don't think about priests. We don't think about sacrifices. We don't think in these terms very often. But the reason it's brought up, remember, is the context of this book. is Jew Jewish Christians who had grown up and, and spent their whole theological education was in the Old Testament. And then they'd come out of that. And, and we're following Jesus. And we're leaving that behind and we're tempted to go back to it. And so this author is trying to show the superiority of Jesus over the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he's, he's showing that Jesus is the greatest high priest in all of history. Now, in the Old Testament Levitical wor worship system, priests had two primary functions. The first was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. This was to offer these sacrifices to God to atone for the sins of the people. But the second role they had was to intercede for the people of God. So they'd offer sacrifices, bring in the blood into the most holy place, and intercede on behalf of the people. He would stand as the people's representative before God. Now verse, this verse that we're looking at this morning is the first mention in the book of Hebrews of Jesus being the high priest. And for those of you who are familiar with the book, he goes into greater detail throughout the book of Hebrews on all that it means for Jesus to be the high priest. But here, he makes it clear that Jesus took on this role and that it's absolutely crucial to our salvation that he did so. You see, Jesus, it says, is a high priest in the service of God or, as some translations have it, in the things pertaining to God, in relation to God. This is a high priest that connected the people to God. He, Jesus stood as the mediator, the one who stood representing the people to God. And friends, this is what we recognize that we need. We need someone to approach God on our behalf because as we mentioned before, we are stained by sin. We cannot approach the most holy God on our own. We need someone to stand in our place. 
we would be consumed by the wrath of God. But Jesus qualifies as the high priest that we need. He qualifies as the one to go into the presence of God on our behalf. You have a high priest before God and you should thank the Lord that that is so because you need one. This verse gives us two qualities of Jesus' high priestly ministry. You notice that? Two qualities. He's merciful and he's faithful. He's merciful and he's faithful. He's merciful to men and he's faithful to God. I believe that saying he's a faithful high priest means that he executes his duty with completeness. He doesn't slack in his responsibility, but he executes his duty as a high priest faithfully and he does all that is required and therefore you and I can trust him wholly and completely to know that he didn't stop short of bringing his blood before the altar in heaven. He didn't stop short of his duty. He didn't get sidetracked or distracted. He didn't do it halfway. He was a faithful high priest that did everything that was required. If you read the Old Testament in Leviticus, all the duties that are required of the high priest, I mean, they, they had to have been going through flashcards to remember all that they had to do because there was a lot of duties that they had. And in the same way, Jesus, all the things that he needed to do to accomplish salvation as a high priest, he did and he was faithful to do that. Emphasized though, and we can't see it so much in the English, but in the Greek, what's emphasized is his mercy. That comes first in the phrase. He's merciful. He's compassionate. And friends, in this we recognize that this high priest was not just a man who went through with the duty and checked it off his list. Friends, this is a Savior who is not cold and distant to us. This is a man with a heart of love and compassion for those whom he is saving. This is one who sympathizes with us because he has undergone life in this world. The next verse tells us that he suffered when he was tempted. He understands life in this world. He lived a normal human life. And so as we look to Jesus as our Savior, we recognize that he has already walked this journey before. He's already lived the journey of difficult trials. And so when we find ourselves on that road, we know that we have a Savior who stands with us. We have a merciful high priest. Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly describes it like this. He says it's not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine. It's also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles like a doctor who has endured the same disease. Jesus understands. Jesus knows. And so friends, as we are living life in this world and we are called to walk through difficult places and trials, we know that we can call upon Jesus who sympathizes with us, who has a heart of mercy and compassion for us. And this is the message of Christmas, friends, that the baby born 2,000 years ago was a Savior who came to walk in solidarity with us so he could minister with sympathy to us. He came to walk in solidarity with us so that he could minister with sympathy to us. In other words, the birth of Jesus reminds us that Jesus loves me. He was determined to be the high priest for his people. He had covenanted with the Lord that he was going to accomplish this task. He was going to take on human flesh. He was going to go to earth. He was going to die upon the cross. And he was going to do all that was needed to make that happen. The Puritan John Owen says this. He says, Such was the unspeakable love of Christ unto his brothers, that he would refuse nothing, no condition that was needful to fit him to be the high priest for them. He would stop at nothing. He would take on whatever was needed. He would accomplish whatever that was needed so that he could be your merciful high priest, so that you could turn to him, so that you would have an advocate before the Father. 
And so today, during this Christmas season, let the love and mercy of Christ shine into your days. May you not be caught up in the world of, of all the Christmas stuff going on and fail to reflect upon the love of Christ that is displayed at the giving of the Son of God. That the baby in the manger reminds us that Jesus did not stand aloof. That he was, is not distant from your pain and from your struggle and from your suffering. He comes alongside you in your loneliness and your despair and in your sorrow. His heart is concerned for you and he ministers on your behalf daily because he knows what it's like to live with weakness. Friends, he is your merciful high, high priest. I want to quote Dane Ortland from his book, Gentle and Lowly, one more time. He says, Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into, into felt isolation. But the Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. Jesus is our perfect Savior. He is not unacquainted with life on this earth. He was made to be like us in every respect. And he does not represent us before the Father out of bare duty, but he is a high priest who ministers out of sympathy for us. And so this Christmas season, see that not only Jesus is similar to you in every way except without sin, but that he has sympathy towards you, the greatest. You cannot find a greater level of love and mercy than what is found in the heart of Christ. Well, there's a final reason from this verse that Jesus is the perfect Savior for you. And that is thirdly, he was sacrificed for you. He was sacrificed for you. Look at the last phrase of verse 17. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. It is here that we get to the ultimate purpose of the incarnation. Why is it that Jesus was obligated to take on human flesh and blood? Why was it that he was required, that there was a necessity, that he be made like us in every respect? It's so that he could do this. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, a big word we typically stumble over rather than meditate upon. But it's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. But it captures a key truth about our salvation and the work of Christ. And John Owen here helpfully uh, distinguishes four things that we can see in this word propitiation. This helps us to define what's going on when we talk about propitiation. The first thing we see in propitiation is an offense or a crime or guilt or dealt debt to be taken away. Secondly, is a person offended? A per someone who's been offended and therefore needs to be pacified, atoned, or reconciled. The third thing we see in propitiation is a person offending who needs to be pardoned and accepted. And fourthly, a sacrifice or other means of making atonement. And so, to take these generic categories and apply them to the gospel and the work of Christ, it means this. Number one, our sin is an offense that needs to be taken away. Number two, that the person offended is God. Number three, that the person offending is us, all of humanity. And then number four, the sacrifice is Jesus Christ. This is what it means that he made propitiation for the sins of the people. This verse teaches that you and I have sins that need to be propitiated. And this goes back to what we said at the beginning, that God's wrath stands against each and every sinner. In the wrath of God, his anger stands against all that oppose him. Some people would like to say, oh, there's no wrath in God. God's just a God of love. But friends, if God is a God of love and he's a God of holiness, then he must stand against all that is contrary to his character. And that 
is where his wrath comes from. His wrath is not something that is, is obtuse and outside of the character of God. It is a direct result of his love and of his holiness and all part of his perfections. His perfect, holy wrath. How did Jesus make propitiation for the sins of the people? He made propitiation by sacrificing himself. By giving of his own life. And here and throughout the book of Hebrews, we get this crazy reality that the high priest is also the sacrificial lamb. You picture the Old Testament of the priest walking up with the lamb and the knife in his hand and slitting the throat of the lamb as it then bled out upon the altar and as they lit the fires to, to burn up that offering to before the Lord. Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrificial lamb. He walked up onto that altar and he laid his life down so that his people would be saved. Now this is not the only place that this concept is mentioned in Scripture. Aside from the Old Testament background of the, of the sacrificial system, propitiation is meant in, mentioned three other times in the Scriptures. Once in Romans and twice in 1 John. And I want to show those to you. So let's flip to, to Romans first. Romans chapter 3. Again, it's, propitiation is only mentioned a few times, but it, it's important when it is. Romans chapter 3, start in verse 23. Verse most are familiar with. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You stop right there. What I want you to see here is that notice who puts Jesus forward as propitiation? It's God. God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Again, the emphasis, emphasis, emphasizing of the blood, that sacrificial terminology. The Father is the one who initiates to send his Son to be killed and to appease his own wrath of sinners. God's wrath against sinners, he sends his son to appease that wrath. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. First John has two mentions of this word propitiation. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The context here is talking about believers who sin. He says, I write these things so you, that you may not sin, but if you do sin... You don't have to worry because you have an advocate before the Father. And why can Jesus be that advocate? Because, verse 2, he's our propitiation. He has absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf and therefore is our high priest who stands before God, advocating for us. He died in our place and thus God's wrath has been propitiated. And it's not just for a select group, a small group of people somewhere, but it is for sinners everywhere who respond to the gospel. Which is why he says that this is not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All people who believe the gospel, wherever they are found, have Christ as their propitiation. But look in chapter 4, verse 10 of the same book. Chapter 4, verse 10. John writes... In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, what we have in this verse is the amazing reality is that this propitiation 
this wrath-absorbing Son of God was propelled into that role by the love of God. What motivated propitiation? It was not that we loved God. It was not that we had some sort of moral quality that God says, oh, they love me so much, I guess I'll do this for them. No, John explicitly says not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He initiated. He sent his son when we were yet enemies, Paul says in Romans 5. We had done nothing with which for him to turn his favor towards us. It's all of grace. It's all of love. It's because of God's love that he propitiated our sins. Propitiation has been described this way. Imagine you're standing on the 10 freeway. And you're in that right-hand lane where all the semis are, are plowing. And a semi is bearing down upon you. If you stay in that spot, you will get demolished. Propitiation would be Jesus stepping in, pushing you out of the way, and absorbing the full force of that semi, killing himself in the process. Friends, the wrath of God stands against every single human being because of their sin. It is coming like a freight train. People today mock the wrath of God because they do not see it and they do not think it's going to come, but there's a day of reckoning. Therefore, we need a wrath absorber. Jesus is that perfect one who's able to do that. Only he can stand in our space, in our place, and absorb that wrath. Only he can ex be accepted before the Father. Only he can take our place because he was without sin. And friends, he could never stand in that place and absorb the full force of God's wrath if he wasn't made like you in every respect. The incarnation was required for propitiation and thus for your salvation. That baby born in Bethlehem that we sing about and that we have on our mantles is the perfect Savior for you. Your sin was great and you couldn't save yourself. But God, in his great love and mercy, sent his son to be born into this world to be the Savior that you need. But friends, this Jesus is not just to be in a good example for us. In other words, the... the takeaway from this passage is not just try to be more like Jesus, although we do want to be like Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to simply be an example, although he was that. He didn't come to simply give us some teaching from heaven, although he did do that. He came to be a sacrifice for sin. He came to propitiate the sins of his people. And this brings us back to where we began that the greatest problem of you and I is not external to us, but is internal to us. It's our sin in our hearts. It's not, our sin is not something that we can deal with ourselves. It's a mud that we cannot wipe off. It's a disease we cannot cure. The message of Christmas tells us that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to save us from our sins. He was born to die. And so the question before each of us then is, will we believe and trust in this Jesus? Or will he remain external from us? We say, that's nice. I don't need him. Friends, before each one of us is presented life and death. As I said, we are all indicted under the law of God. We have fallen short. We are not righteous. But if we believe in Jesus, we will find life, everlasting life, through him. But if we reject him, then there is only awaiting certain death under the wrath of God. The Bible is clear in John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Why? The wrath of God remains on him. The question is, will you trust him to be your Savior today? There is no greater need for any of us than to trust in Jesus. You cannot trust your lineage, the family you were born into, the tradition that you've grown up in. You cannot trust some church that you've attended for however many years. You can only trust in your faith in Christ. You cling to him. 
Do you trust Jesus that he absorbed the wrath for you? That is where life is found. Now for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, that we have have turned from our sin and turned to him and trusted him to be the wrath absorber for us, we need to be reminded of this propitiation that Jesus provides. It's because he consumed the wrath of God for us that he is our high priest and he is our advocate. Friends, when we sin, we can go to him confessing our sin and finding forgiveness. And remember this, it's because of the high priestly ministry of Jesus that the Father is pleased with us. Friends, we are accepted before God. He is at peace with us. We are reconciled to him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is the greatest Christmas gift ever. Amen? Amen. So I pray that this truth of Christ the baby born in the manger, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, who was born to die, would truly delight your soul this Christmas and that you would remember all that you have because of his work upon the cross. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of this verse, that we have a high priest who understands, a high priest who is merciful and sympathetic to us, we thank you that Jesus was made like us in every respect and that he is the perfect savior for us. I pray that if there are any here, Father, who have not trusted in Jesus, who are continuing to trust in their own goodness, in their own righteousness, Father, would you break them of their pride, cause them to recognize that they have a day of reckoning coming, they would turn to Jesus. And Father, may your people, the church, rejoice in all that Jesus has done for them. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.